God, we just um, come before you and we're just amazed at your grace, amazed at your mercy, and just hearing Jay's testimony, we're just so encouraged. For we, that's, that's proof, that's a clear proof of, of how merciful and a forgiving and a loving God you are. Uh, just seeing how you changed Jay's heart. God, we thank you for our brother's salvation, that out of the depths of his mire, shame, guilt, and sin, you rescued him and saved his soul, and you've caused him to have a deep love for you and for your word and for your church. And just uh, the fruit of salvation is so evident, and we give all glory, praise, and honor to you untouched. Lord, we pray for him that... Um, that he who began a good work in him will carry it unto completion, that he will work out a salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in him to will and to act according to your great purpose, uh, that your word that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that penetrates the dividing soul of the bone and marrow, soul and spirit, that judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the word of God will just take root in his heart, and continue to transform him into a mighty woman of God. Lord, that you will bless his family, his wife, and child to come, and that they will have a godly heritage for future generations. Lord, we commit this time to you as we study your word. May we open our hearts to its truths, and may you reign over us as we submit to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll get right into the message for this morning. Um, if you remember several months ago, Larry King Live, uh, he has a show on CNN, had five panelists to discuss a topic called, Where Was God? It was in reference to September 11th incident with the World Trade Center's collapsing, the terrorist attacks, and now we know a little under 3,000 men, women, and children perished. The question that was proposed to a national audience was, where was God? How could such a, such a tragic thing happen in the world today? The five panelists were, were a Muslim cleric, a Jewish rabbi, Harold Krishner. He wrote a best-selling book several years ago when bad things happened to good people. The third uh, panelist was a New Age guru, Deepak Chopra, you guys, some of you guys might know who he is. Fourth panelist was the writer of Prayer of Jabez, Bruce Wilkinson. And the fifth panelist was none other than the third elder of Cornerstone Bible Church, John MacArthur. Uh, there was a head-on collision of worldviews. It was fascinating to watch as a seminary graduate, to see the dialogue that was ensuing was awesome to see and to see uh, our pastor, in a sense, stand fast to the faithful truth. Truth was an awesome sight. Now, if you saw the program, you could actually go on to CNN.com and look this up. And the tr it's a trans the transcription is on the net. If you 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 will note that John caused quite a stir uh, because of his uncompromising and his highly politically incorrect views concerning God, man, sin, and salvation. Now, towards the end of the show, a caller came in with a question, and he asked this, Larry, I want to ask your panel if these hijackers are in heaven or hell right now. 
that was a question presented to the panelists. Well, Larry King turned to John MacArthur and asked him, well, what do you believe, John? And John respond, responded, well, I believe there's only one way to go to heaven, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And obviously, their faith was not in Jesus Christ, because that's evident from what their, the, what, what they did, their acts. You, if you know Christ, your life is trans, transformed, and you don't do things like that. Well, Larry King turned to Rabbi Kushner. Where are they, he asked. Kushner responded, well, I feel a little bit excluded by that last statement. But you know, I have problems with hell. I have trouble believing in a God who would send people to eternal damnation. I might be prepared to do it. I rather think God is beyond that. I think they're not in heaven. I think that heaven is reserved for people who have lived a good life. I think they have simply disappeared. They had dreams of an afterlife. They had dreams of pleasure, of being welcomed and all that. But I don't think they are anywhere. They are non-existent, and that's the best thing that can happen to them. Well, Larry King turned to Deepak Chopra and asked him, Where do you think they are? And Chopra responded, Larry, I don't know where they are. Only God knows where they are. But I have a problem with some of your panelists. Because I don't think Christ was a Christian, Buddha was a Buddhist, or Muhammad was a Mohammedan. I think it's just that kind of thing that says only the way of Jesus is right, that the others say only the way of Muhammad is right and Buddha is right. We have sacrificed a universal being and created a tribal chief with our gods, and that's the problem. Well, Larry King turned to John and understood that all the controversy was surrounding John MacArthur, and he said, well, John, would you like to counter that? And John MacArthur responded, yeah, I just, think, I just don't think with all due respect that Deepak is the authority on that. I don't think Rabbi Kushner is the authority on that either. And Larry King said, well, nor are you. And MacArthur said, no, I don't think I'm the authority. Where are you going to go to? You have to have an authoritative book. And Larry King said, and that is? And MacArthur said, the Bible. <laughs> Larry King said, which Bible? MacArthur said, the Holy Bible, right? Larry King said, so why is your belief better than his belief? The Muslim cleric seated next to him. It's different, but why is yours better, superior? MacArthur responded, it's not a question of comparing people's beliefs. It's a question of what is the authority, end quote. That's the question, isn't it? All these divergent views about God, man, sin, and salvation. The issue comes down to what is the authority? Who determines what is truth? All these differing opinions about men's destiny. Who is right and who are wrong? The issue is authority. That is exactly it. Rabbi Kushner's view has no basis because he is not in the position of authority to dictate truth, nor is Tipak Chopra, nor is the Muslim cleric, not even John MacArthur. The issue is, who has the authority? And the authority is found only in God. Only in God is there authority to reveal truth and only the truth. We find the answer to this question in today's passage. Who has the authority? 
to determine truth. In John chapter 3, 31 through 36, John the Apostle tells us that Jesus' testimony, our Lord's testimony, is the authoritative testimony. That Jesus' is authority, that his testimony is far and away superior and determinative. That's his point. That's the Apostle's point in verses 31 through 36. Now, why does John the Apostle launch into the superiority of Christ's testimony over against all other preceding testimony, including all the other Old Testament prophets? Now, why does John do this? It is an addendum, if you will, a commentary, an explanation of John chapter 3, verse 30. John just made a statement, he must increase, I must decrease, he pointing to Jesus Christ, and John looking back after the cross and resurrection, writes an addendum, a commentary if you will, explaining why Jesus must increase and John the baptizer must decrease. Let me give you a brief background to bring you up to speed on the context of these words. It's been over a month since we've been in the Gospel of John. Just a brief background from verses 22 through 30. In our last study, if you remember about five weeks ago, we learned that more and more people were going to Christ to be baptized. And the result was that John's ministry of preaching and baptism was decreasing. And while the Lord's was increasing, and the uh, disciples of John, noticing this, come to John the baptizer, and they say, John, do you know what's going on? That everybody is going to the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, instead of you. The guy you baptized, the guy you started in ministry, his is increasing while yours is de decreasing. And John 3.30 contains the last words of the Baptist in the fourth gospel. He says to his disciples, he must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. Now, there is so much here in verse 30 that we spend four weeks on how this verse directly applies to Christian ministry. Right? I mean, if I had it my way, I would have spent several more weeks on just the direct application of John's statements as it relates to our service of the Lord. But there is a further significance in these words, which we will delve into this morning. The significance of verse 30 is heightened by the fact that John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet. In fact, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets in the long line of prophets dating back all the way to Moses in the, in the Pentateuch. All the prophets that have come Subsequent to Moses, John is the last one, and verse 30 is the last recorded testimony of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, in the fourth Gospel. So in a sense, his, his statement in verse 30 is a summation of all the testimonies that have come before him in the history of prophecies. Verse 30 is the last, last words of old covenant prophecies. Let us consider briefly the role and function of prophets in the Old Testament. The role and function of prophets in the Old Testament. There was a great, a great importance was placed on the prophetic movement in the scriptures. It is 
obvious because the word prophet alone occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament. Over 300 times. Two other terms were referred to, a, were used to refer to a prophet of God. Two other words, two other terms. The second most used term was applied to various prophets. The, the term is the phrase man of God. It is used over 76 times in the Old Testament. It is used 36 times to refer to Elijah as a man of God. Elijah referred seven times as the man of God. Moses five times. Samuel four times. David three times. So three terms. Um, prophet, man of God. And the third term used um, fewer than ten times is the term seer. S-E-E-R. Seer. Used to refer to Samuel in 1 Samuel 9.9. 9. Now, what does this mean, a prophet of God? Uh, examination of the meaning of the word prophet is evident from its second occurrence in Exodus 7. If you will turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, and we'll look at the meaning of a prophet of God. Now, the uh, first occurrence of this word prophet is found in Genesis 20 verse 7. Abraham is called the prophet. Abraham is the first person in the Bible to be called the prophet. But this yields little meaning because um, beyond that, the prophet, all it says is that the prophet had a close relationship with God, that he could pray effectively. Beyond that, the meaning is not given in, in Genesis 20. But the idea of this word prophet is defined and clarified in Exodus 4 and Exodus 7. So first, turn to Exodus chapter 4. Here God explains this idea of a prophet, albeit in somewhat of an indirect way. Um, in Exodus 4, God appears to Moses in a flame on a tree. The tree is not burned. He takes off his shoes and comes to the presence of Yahweh. And God says that he wants to use Moses as an instrument to redeem his people, to release them from captivity in Israel. And what is Moses' response? Here is a man of faith. Here is a man of courage and conviction. His response is, he is so lacking in eloquence that it is impossible for him to act as God's representative before Pharaoh. Look at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses says, O oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. God responds by saying that he will appoint Moses' brother Aaron, who was a good speaker, to accompany him. And Moses could tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron would then relay it to Pharaoh. And look at 4.16 of Exodus. God says, He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. Here is an indirect description of a prophet. Someone who is a messenger for someone else. Aaron will be a prophet to you. It will be as if you were in his mouth. As if you were God to him. 
Now with that mindset, turn to Exodus 7.1. That definition, that idea is fully clarified and summarized in Exodus 7.1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Your brother Aaron will be your prophet. This verse tells us that the word prophet means one who passes on a message on behalf on behalf of another. Behalf of another. Someone who, who delivers a message accurately, powerfully, even positionally on behalf of another. So a prophet of God was a person who passed on God's message. Someone who passed on God's message. And Judaism is unique in that it's a prophetic faith. It's a faith that is revealed by God through prophets, through men of God. This was a unique function of all true Old Testament prophets. They acted literally as mouthpieces for God. They received the message from God and they proclaimed it in accordance with God's commands. Jeremiah 1.7, when God called Jeremiah, he told him, you must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Jeremiah 1.17, God tells Jeremiah, stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Ezekiel 3.4, God said to him, son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. The position of a prophet was therefore unique in the history of Israel. A king or a priest generally received their positions through heredity. They, they were sons of a priest, they were sons of a king, son of a king. But no one could ever be a prophet simply because his father was one. Kings, priests, other officials might be appointed or elected by human instruments, but no human individual or organization could enable a man to become a prophet of God. The prophet of God was a man who was distinctly called by God himself to speak for God. And most importantly, the divine source of his message was God alone. Uh, the prophet's message was never, according to 1 Peter, rooted in himself. It was God's message given to man. Therefore, this made the, made the office and position of a prophet a high and exalted office with great responsibility. God used godly men, devoted men throughout the history of Israel to be his mouthpieces. For example, Moses... The Bible calls him one of the greatest prophets of all time, was used by God to reveal God's will to his people and redeem them from slavery. And we see in the Old Testament a long list of prophets that were used by God to teach, rebuke, and correct the na nation of Israel. The first prophet, chronologically, is Joel. And it goes all the way down through Jonah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And the last prophet in the canon of scripture in the Old Testament and also chronologically is Malachi. Ministering around 433 through 425 B.C. Now we mistakenly believe that Malachi is the last Old Testament prophet, but he was not. 
The Old Testament prophetic line did not end with Malachi, but it ended with John the Baptist. Our Lord declares this in Matthew 11:13. Our Lord says, All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So that line of prophets starts started with Abraham, Genesis 27, went to Moses, went all the way through the minor prophets until John the Baptizer. So in a unique way, John represents all the prophets who had come before him. In a way, John is the culmination of all the previous prophets. And his concluding statement here is a concluding statement of God's old covenant to Israel. This is his final declaration. So in a sense, the final declaration of all the prophets that have come before him his, ver his words here in verse 30 sums up all the previous prophets. And what is that? Verse 30 again. He must become greater. I must become less. In our last two chapters, we studied the last recorded words of two key characters in the Gospels. If some of our friends would take special note of their last recorded words, it will lead them to a clearer understanding of the truth. For example, the Roman Catholics, in their desire to esteem Mary, if they would just heed the last words of Mary, it would lead, lead them to truth. The last recorded words of Mary are in John chapter 2, verse 5. What does Mary say? Mary says to her servants, whatever Jesus says to, to you, do it. She points the finger not to herself, but she points her finger to Jesus Christ and says, whatever he tells you to do, obey him. Well, in John 3.30, I hope our Jewish friends who hold prophets in high esteem, if they would only listen to John, they would not start with Malachi. Understand that John is the last Old Testament prophet. And listen to John's last words. And John's last words were, Jesus must increase. Right. Again, an incredible statement in light of John's prophetic ministry. As the last Old Covenant prophet of God, John is saying, Jesus must increase. Why? Why did John say this? Well, in verses 31 through 36, John the Apostle intervenes in this narrative. And he explains why. He explains why John said this in verse 30. In verses 31 through 36, the person and work of John the Baptist, and in fact, the person and work of all, this, all the prophets of the Old Testament, are contrasted with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John the Apostle, post-cross, post-resurrection, his conclusion is this. It is that our Lord's testimony is exceedingly superior to the testimony of John the Baptist. And not only John, but our Lord's testimony is superior to all the Old Testament prophets. That's what John was saying. And verses 31 through 36 are the proofs, are the reasons why verse 30 is true. So in verses 31 to 36, we see four reasons 
for the uttermost superiority of our Lord's testimony. Four reasons for the uttermost superiority of our Lord's testimony. Of our Lord's authority. The first reason is found in verse 31. Superior origin of the witness. Superior origin of the witness. The evangelist writes, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. The evangelist begins by setting forth two contrasting realities. He says there is heaven and there is earth. And the clear consequence is that the one who comes from heaven is above the one who comes from earth. It's a simple but powerful argument. John the Apostle asserts the infinite superiority of Christ. Infinite superiority of Christ's testimony of his authority because Jesus comes from heaven, from above. John the Baptist and all other preceding prophets of God were all from the earth, but not the Lord, not Jesus Christ. His origin as a person is from heaven. Therefore, he is qualitatively, qualitatively distinct from and above all. Paul says this in Ephesians 1.21. Paul says in Ephesians 1.21 that Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. That every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, he is above all. Now, some see difficulty in seeing John the Baptist's ministry as earthly. For when you compare John the Baptist's ministry to the scribes and Pharisees, he was not earthly, but it was heavenly. But when you compare John to Jesus Christ, it was indeed earthly. J.C. Rowell says that when a candle is compared to darkness, it is light. But that same candle, when it is compared to the sun, is a poor, dim spark. Like, likewise, when the baptizer's ministry was compared to the teaching and authority of the Pharisees, his was definitely heavenly, but when compared to Christ, it was earthly. Our Lord's superiority, our Lord's superiority and authority and testimony lies in his origin. And secondly, in verse 32, superior source of Jesus' testimony. The superior source. Our Lord's testimony is authoritative because of a superior source. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness. Our Lord's testimony is superior because he possessed direct authority. He possessed direct authority for his testimony. The authority of the prophets were all derived from God. They were not direct. They were all derived. Our Lord possessed direct authority while the prophets possessed only derived authority. That is why when Old Testament prophets prophesied, meaning they foretold the word of God, they always said, Thus saith the Lord. Not, doth saith Elijah, doth saith Isaiah, or Daniel, or Ezekiel. They said, doth saith the Lord. But when Jesus spoke, he said, truly, truly, I say unto you, 
This is what I say because his authority was something he possessed. It was inherent in who he is, who he was, and who he is. It was direct authority. He exercised this authority of God because of his person, not just his position. He is not like mere men, mere servants of God who only declared what they were taught by the Holy Spirit. As God, as God in flesh, he declares with full authority of what he has personally seen, what he has personally heard from God the Father. Now that, that phrase there, what he has seen and heard, it's another way of expressing certainty. It's a figurative way of saying perfect and true knowledge. Perfect and true knowledge. We, we talk about, we use those terms in our, in our conversation where I saw it for myself. I heard it with my own ears. When John the Apostle says that of Christ, he's saying that Christ has perfect knowledge, perfect testimony because the authority lies with himself. Well, Jesus' authority is uh, the superiority of Jesus' authority, his testimony is found in his origin, found in his source. Third is in the extent of his testimony by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Superior in the extent of his testimony by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. He speaks God's words. Why? For he gives the Spirit without measure. That's capital S. For God gives the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ without limit. Well, the Jewish rabbis considered that the various prophets had received, and received the Holy Spirit in different proportions or measures. So some prophets had certain uh, segments of God's truth, but it was always partial. It was always limited because they always received a limited portion of God's Spirit. That is why in 2 Kings 2.9, Elisha asks Elijah, to give him a double portion of the Holy Spirit because it was given in proportionate amounts. But that idea could hardly be confessed of Jesus Christ. In the case of Christ, he possessed the Holy Spirit in unmeasured fullness. John 3.34, for God gives Jesus the Spirit without limit. Here is infinite possession and infinite understanding of the divine mind. The Lord, therefore, was uniquely qualified to provide the highest and fullest revelation of God to man because, as Colossians 1 says, God was pleased to have all the fullness of deity dwell in him. For in Christ, all the fullness of God lives in him in bodily form. Therefore, his words are not merely human words. They're not incomplete words. They're completely divine Therefore, to receive his testimony was to receive the authoritative words of God. Well, fourthly, Christ's authority, his testimony is superior because of his origin, his source, his extent. Fourthly, because of his superior relationship with the Father. Verse 35, his superior relationship with the Father. The Father loves the Son. 
and has given all things into his hands. J.C. Rao writes, The love of the Father towards the Son, spoken here, is a subject far too deep for man to fathom. It is beyond our comprehension. He continues and he says, God loved the prophets as his servants, but he loves Christ as his only Son and communicates himself to him in proportion to his love. The prophets had only particular commissions, limited to a certain time and certain purposes. But Christ has full power given to him because of the Father's special love for him. Our God, the Father, had a special, unique, and particular love for his Son. And that is described in a particular way in the Gospel of John. John 10, 17, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. John 17, 23, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and that you loved me. John 17, 26, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. John 17, 26. The only audible voice recorded in the Gospels is when God says about his son and his baptism by John, Matthew 3.17, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Our Lord's testimony authority is unique because of his superior relationship with God the Father. God the Father had no, had, didn't have such love for any other prophet compared to his love for his only son. And therefore, verse 35b, he has given all things into his hand. The verb there is a timeless, perfect sense. He has given, placed, once for all, once for all time. Because of God's perfect love for his only son, God has given all authority into the hands of Christ. Now, what are these things that were given to Christ? The Son of God, as Creator, had an original right to all things, to control and dispose of them. But the universe is put under Him as the mediator, as a mediator between God and man. God gave this authority to Christ to redeem His people, to gather His church, to build His church. God gave Christ the sole authority to justify man, to forgive sin, to sanctify Christians, and to glorify His chosen people. And God gave His Son the sole authority to judge all mankind, to dispense the judgment of God. The authority of Christ is unqualified, is incomparable, and is far and away superior to the authority and testimony of all the preceding prophets, the last one being John the Baptist. Well, John the Apostle notes the response of two groups of people in the world. He says in verse 32, No man receives his testimony. NAS, NIV says, But no one accepts his testimony. 
Now, no one obviously is a hyperbole. John and Paul, many of the Christians accepted his testimony. But John writing post-cross, post-resurrection, he's looking at the Calvary, looking at Calvary, looking at the cross. And at the moment when God lavished his love towards the world, there was no one there. At the crucial point of history, at the cross, no one received, no one accepted his testimony. This superior testimony of God was rejected by man. On the whole, mankind rejected this superior testimony of Jesus Christ. Though it was superior in origin, source, extent, and relationship, it was by and large rejected by the Jewish people and the world. Well, one group rejected Christ, but another group, verse 33, He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. John acknowledges that there are some who receive this testimony. The witness, martyrion, is the same word for testimony. There are some who receive this testimony, and those that have received this testimony have certified that God is true. Meaning, when you receive Jesus Christ, when you accept Jesus Christ's testimony, you are certifying all the testimonies of all the prophets in the Old Testament. When they accept Christ, they're not merely entering into a relationship. They are recognizing the authority that God was true throughout the Old Testament, all through Christ and the New Testament as well. Well, I don't need to conclude this sermon because John the Apostle concludes it for us. Verse 36. Now here's the important part, guys. In verses 31 to 35 are the, contains the resume of Christ, Christ's credentials. So because of his origin, because of the source of his authority, because of his having the Holy Spirit without measure, because of his special relationship, it is, it is concluded that he has this authority to determine truth, to reveal truth. Verse 36 is the truth. The credentials are confirmed. What is the message? And John says, well, this is the message in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For why? Why? Why, why will they not see life? For God's wrath remains on him. So verse 36. This is... So John the Apostle summarizes the gospel, summarizes the message of Christ in one verse. He says, whoever, anyone believes in Christ, believes in the Son, has eternal life. Present tense, meaning eternal life is regarded as the present possession of believers. When people put their trust in Christ, they are immediately reborn from above. They immediately enter into a new life. The decisive thing has happened, as articulated by Jay. That they are saved. They are possessors of eternal life. They have entered into a new relationship. They have been born again. There's a dramatic transformation that has taken place that cannot be denied. Present possession. It is not longing for the by and by. It is today, the moment a person trusts in Christ. But whoever does not obey the Son, NIV says rejects. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. They do not have eternal life. Why? Because God's wrath remains on him. 
It is the only time John uses the word wrath and it's found in verse 36. And I think because of that, it is that much more powerful. If John used wrath for every other emotion of Christ or other disciples, it would lose the weight, the force of this word. But because it is the only time John used it in the whole gospel, the gravity of its meaning warrants our attention. There are two basic words for anger in the Greek New Testament. There is a subtle distinction that exists between these two uh, uh, Greek words. The first word is thumos. It, it talks about a heated anger that is temporary. Right? It is a turbulent anger that suddenly blazes up and is quickly extinguished. And we all experience that from time to time. Thumos. The second Greek word is orge. It speaks of an anger that is continual and remaining. The word that John uses is not thumos, it is orge. Indicates a settled indignation. A personal anger of God towards those who reject his son. Wrath of God revealed in the Bible is not an impersonal blind force that automatically punishes men for sins. The wrath of God revealed in the Bible is a personal wrath, anger, indignation that is directed personally to individuals, to whoever trusts the Son, has eternal life, but to whoever, to that individual that rejects my Son, the wrath, the orge of God, the settled indignation of God remains on him or her. It is a holy indignation. God's anger directed against sin. The wrath of God is an expression of God's holy personality. Expression of his holy love. John says, this wrath of God remains on that person. It does not fade away. Some might expect, to, expect this to fade away with the passage of time. John rejects such ideas. Anyone who continues in unbelief and disobedience can look for nothing but the persistent wrath of God. This concluding sentence of John teaches us that so long as a man is not a believer in Christ, to that person, the righteous wrath of God hangs over him or her, and that that person is under the curse for breaking God's laws. Today, this morning, if your sins are still upon your soul, they are unpardoned, unforgiven, untaken away, then God's wrath remains upon you. It tells us that without a positive decision to believing in the Son for your sins, that humans do not stand a chance at eternal life. Why? Because they are and they will continue to be under the wrath, the condemnation of God. Let me read to you the words of the prophet Nahum in Nahum chapter 1, 2 through 6. The prophet says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, yet the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. 
He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Thus saith the Old Testament prophet. This is so very important. Verses 31 through 35 confirms the superiority of Christ's testimony. And Christ's testimony in verse 36 is that whoever receives the Son has presently eternal life. Whoever rejects, rejects the Son, the wrath of God, the indignation of God remains on him or her presently. This is a crucial statement of this text. You know, to close our time, I have just one application for all of us here. It is an application not to be obeyed later on this afternoon. It's not an application to be obeyed tomorrow or later on this week, but an application to be obeyed for the next 15 minutes. This is the verse that moved Jonathan Edwards to pen his sermon, the greatest theological mind that America has ever produced. And he wrote, moved by this verse, the wrath of God remaining upon an unconverted sinner. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. No man has better articulated the wrath of God than Jonathan Edwards than in this sermon. The application that I have for you is not to do anything in response to this message, to do anything later on this afternoon or tomorrow, but your application is just for you to listen to my reading of a portion of Jonathan Edwards' message and listen to it with your heart wide open. A.W. Pink says that the wrath of God is, a per is the perfection of the divine character that warrants our careful and immediate attention. I invite you to apply this message today just simply by acknowledging God's omniscience Acknowledging God's wrath and listening to the wrath of God as it remains upon an unconverted sinner. Somewhat lengthy, but text warrants our attention, our time spent uh, in this message. What Edwards writes, those without Christ are, un are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. The sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness, is gone out against them and stands against them, so that they are already bound to hell. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more. They rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising. There is nothing but the mere pleasures of God that holds the waters back. 
if God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, hates you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. Yet, yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you, was, that you were allowed to awake again this, in this world this morning. There is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. There is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. You, it is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of those damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest yet in any mediator. You have nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Consider three things. Whose wrath it is. It is the wrath of an infinite God. If it were only the wrath of man, Though it were of the most powerful prince, it would be comparatively little to be regarded. The wrath of kings is much dreaded, but the greatest earthly king and their greatest majesty are but feeble, despicable worms of the dust in comparison of the great and almighty creator and king of heaven and earth. It is but little that they can do when most enraged and when they have exerted the utmost of their fury. All the kings of the earth before God are as grasshoppers. They are nothing less than nothing. 
the wrath of the great king of kings, is as much more terrible than theirs, as his majesty is greater. Luke 12, 4-5 says, Be not afraid of those who kill the body and can do no more. But I tell you, fear him, after which you are killed, has the power to cast you into hell. I say unto you, fear him. Secondly, consider that it is the fierceness of his wrath that you are exposed to. We often read of the fury of God as in Isaiah 59, 18. According to their deeds, God will repay fury to his adversaries. Isaiah 66, 15, for, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots to render his anger with fury and rebuke with flames of fire. Oh, how dreadful must that be? Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? That it is the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Oh, then, what will be the consequence? What will become of the poor worms that shall suffer it? Whose hands can be so strong? Whose heart can endure? To what a dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery must the poor creature be sunk who shall be subject to this? Consider this. You hear that it remain unregenerate, that God will execute the fierceness of his anger directed towards your soul, it remains upon you. Thirdly, know that God stands ready to pity you, that this is a day of mercy. You may cry now with some encouragement of obtaining mercy, but once the day of mercy is past, your loudest cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost and thrown away of God. God will have no other use to put you to but to suffer misery. You shall be continued in being to no other end. You will be a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. If at that day you cry to God to pity you, he will be so far from pitying you in your doleful case or showing you the least regard or favor that instead of that he will only tread you underfoot. And though he will know that you cannot bear the weight of the omnipotence treading upon you, he will not regard that, but he will crush you under his feet without mercy. He will crush out your blood, make it fly, and it shall be sprinkled on his garment so as to stain all his raiment. He will not only hate you, but he will have you in the utmost contempt. No place shall be thought fit for you, but under his feet to be trodden down as the of the streets. Fourthly, note that it is an everlasting wrath. It will be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts, amaze your soul, and cause you to be in absolute despair because there will be no end. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances? All that we can possibly say about it 
is that who knows the power of God's anger? How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in the danger of this great wrath and infinite misery? Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. There is reason to think that there are many in this congregation who are hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. We know not who they are. We know not what seats they sit in or what thoughts they, they now have. It may be they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons that they will escape. If we knew that there was one person, but one in the whole congregation, that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight would it be to see such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many it is likely will remember this discourse in hell. Now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A dare where Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open. He stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, calling them to come to him. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. How awful it would be to left behind, to see others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest for one moment in such a condition? Are there not many here today who have lived long in the world and are not today, they are not born again. And so they are aliens from the commonwealth of God. They have, they have done nothing ever since they have lived but treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. Oh, sirs, your case in an especial manner is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart is extremely great. You need to consider yourselves and awake thoroughly out of sleep. You cannot bear the fierceness and wrath of the infinite God. You young men, young women, will you neglect this precious season which you now enjoy when so many others of your age are renouncing sinful vanities and flocking to Christ? You especially have now an extraordinary opportunity but if you neglect it, it will soon be with you as with those persons who spent all the precious days of youth in sin and are now come to such a dreadful pass in blindness and hardness. And you children who are unconverted, do you not know that God is now angry with you? Angry with you every day and every night? Will you be content to be the children of the devil? when so many other children in the land are converted and are becoming holy and happy children of the King of Kings? Let everyone that is out of Christ, hanging over the pit of hell, 
whether they be old men or women, middle-aged, young people or little children, may they now hearken to the loud cause of God's word and providence. This acceptable ear of the Lord, a day of such great favors to come, will doubtless be a day of us, remarkable. Men's heart and heart, hearts harden, and their guilt increases at such a day as this, if they neglect their souls. Now, undoubtedly, it was as in the days of John the Baptist. The axe is in an extraordinary, extraordinary manner laid at the root of the trees, that every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ, may they awake and fly away from the wrath to come, the wrath of the Almighty God, who is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this church. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Do not look behind you. Escape to Christ, lest you be consumed. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and how so many of us have entertained wrong thoughts of you, thoughts that are so beneath you that they are blasphemous, idolatrous. We know that the Bible declares that you are God of love slow to anger, abounding in mercy, showing love to a thousand generations, that you call out to men to be saved, that you desire none to perish, but everyone to repent and be saved. And yet at the same time, we know that you are a holy God, a thrice holy God, that has an utter hatred for sin, for wickedness and every vileness under heaven. And therefore, for those who reject the Son, your settled indignation remains on them if they did not repent. Lord, how tragic it would be for some in this room to hear the word of God and reject it purely based upon pride, purely based on man-centered arrogance and a denial of your truth. Lord, we pray that you would be merciful God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and blow in the hard, stubborn and, and hardened hearts in this church. Those who are presuming their salvation falsely or for those who are outrightly rejecting you, we pray that you will grant them faith to repent, to turn from your wrath, to turn from your fury, and to trust in you. Lord, we know that you will be glorified in salvation and in also the condemnation of the wicked. We pray that this day you will be glorified by the salvation of your people. In Jesus' name we pray.